What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I'm the first woman you ever fell in love with? Yeah, pretty much. The first woman I ever felt a real connection to? What? I wasn't your first love? No, of course not. Uh, no, I just, I, I thought I was. No! <laughs> it's true. Josh and I first met as 20-somethings in Vienna, only to be reunited as co-hosts in 2012. So you're the arrogant American, and I'm the crazy French girl in this relationship? Works for me. We all have our roles, Josh. Director Richard Linklater has moved on from his beloved Before trilogy to a new and even more audacious experiment, chronicling the life of a single boy over 12 years. Our review of Boyhood. You really thought I was your first love, Adam? Ahead on this film-spotting fix. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code FILM. That's squarespace.com and use offer code FILM. listening to film spotting and it is a film spotting fix edition because post 500 we felt like maybe we deserved a little break i don't know if we're patting ourselves on the back too much josh we were pretty happy i don't know if we'd be physically capable of doing a full show is the problem that's the problem yeah and part of it's just logistics i'm going on a road trip with my family you're following that with a little trip with your family so we are delaying the show in its usual format for another week but We know just how much listeners want to hear us talk about boyhood and even more than that, how much we want to talk about boyhood. So we're going to get to that. But I know we did want to just share a few comments up front about that 500th episode and how proud we were of how the night went and seeing 400 plus film spotting fans and just film fans, some of them who didn't even know why they were there. They just walked in. Seeing did them you at talk the music to that box. couple sitting in the back after we were I done? Heard I heard I about it. I talked to them and it was so great. They're like, yeah, the show we came to is sold out. So we thought, let's <laughs> check this out. Hey, they stuck around the whole time. Yeah. If we hook two new listeners, that's there great. You go. But seeing that line outside, seeing that crowd there, couldn't have been a better venue. And having Michael Phillips and Dana Stevens Really, they were fantastic. We hope you enjoyed the finished podcast as you heard it last week. I hope it was as much fun to listen to as it was for us to record. It was a blast. I mean, yeah, you're right. Having those two always does class the place up a bit, uh, as I said that night. And the Ryan Johnson interview, I thought he gave us great stuff. The guy's such a film fan, Mm -hmm. and you can see that. So you're getting two things there, right? You're getting a filmmaker talking about his craft Mm -hmm. as much as he could let out at this point, and also just talking uh, in terms of being a film lover. So that was great. But it's just such an amazing vibe to do all of that in front of a crowd, and yeah. especially these listeners, mm-hmm. because they're clued into what's going on. They know every reference, and they're not afraid to to boo a pick <laughs> or a comment uh, and just as likely to cheer. And that is just such a great energy to do. And to do it in that room, mm-hmm. um, I, I talked about that night, uh, you know, all the memories I have of seeing stuff there. And mm-hmm. so to be able to, to do the show there, too, was uh, surreal in a pretty cool way. And what was really touching, honestly, touching was seeing how many people we talked to many beforehand. We had a little meetup and I wish we could have had a chance to meet even more listeners. But the number of people, as I referenced during the show, who came 
from other states, some of them yeah. very far away. We had people in from the Baltimore area, from L.A., from Atlanta, from Boston, really from all over. Our Massacre Theater pick couldn't have been better. Karen she was so good. From Cincinnati, <laughs> yeah. you know, randomly picked, but came in from Cincinnati. He'd actually sent us an email a couple weeks prior and said, my husband and I have booked our tickets, couldn't be more excited. And then she got picked out of the crowd to come up on stage. And that was a lot of fun. And speaking of Ryan Johnson, again, our sincere Thanks to him for being part of that night. He didn't have to do yeah. it. We certainly would have understood if he, he said, probably had you know better what? things to do. I can't come. And not only can I not come, I'm too busy to do this little video thing. But he couldn't have been more up for it. My favorite part, frankly, of that interview, Josh, was when he was listing his top 10 films or so of the film spotting era and had Inglorious Bastards in there. Mm-hmm. I know that was you, good. I'm pretty sure you set that up with him ahead of time. See, I don't. I'm not able to. Text <laughs> I wish them, I was that. Savvy. So I can't arrange those sorts of things. Yeah. Speaking of massacre theater, I want to assure you as well. And uh, I'll be vague here because there are probably still some guesses coming in True. as to what we were reading. Anyone in the crowd knows <laughs> what we were doing. The my prop, prop. The, the prop malfunction you had. Um, I showed my nephew who lent us the prop Mm -hmm. and uh, I was afraid he was going to be crying because it was broken and I'm going to have to try to find like some expensive one to replace it. He looks at it and goes, oh, that happens all the time. Twists it. And it's ready to go. Good so you're, you're off the I'm hook. I'm in the clear. Uh, you're right, though. Talking to listeners was so great beforehand. We were able to do that meetup, which was a great idea. Um, and one of the things that came up most often, people talked about what their top five films of the film spotting era were and how difficult that was. So it was good to hear people understood that it was a tough task. But also... They wanted to know, were we going to review Boyhood? Were right. we going to review Boyhood? Because we had teased that we might. We had, it, and it was in the mix. Um, but again, tight time frame. We weren't able to do it then, but we are going to do it now. Here's Boyhood. Talk to me. Samantha, how was your week? Uh, I don't know, Dad, it was kind of tough. Billy and Ellen broke up, and Ellen's kind of mad at me because she saw me talking to Billy in the cafeteria. And you remember that sculpture I was working on? Well, it was a unicorn, and the horn broke off, so now it's a zebra. Okay, But I still think I'm going to get an egg. Right? Mason, uh, how was your week? Well, Dad, you know, it's kind of tough. Joe, he's kind of a jerk. Actually, he stole some cigarettes from his mom. He wanted me to smoke them. But I said no, because I knew what a hard time you had quitting smoking, Dad. How about that? Is that so hard? Dad, these questions are kind of hard to answer. What is so hard to answer about what sculpture are you making? It's abstract. Okay. Okay, that's good. See? That's, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were even interested in abstract art. I'm not. They make us do it. But, Dad, I mean, why is it all on us, though? You know, what about you? How was your week? You know, who do you hang out with? Do you have a girlfriend? What have you been up to? I see your point. So we should just let it happen more naturally, right? That's what you're saying. Okay, that's what we'll do. Starting now. I'm afraid, Adam, there's not much suspense to this review of Boyhood, Richard Linklater's remarkable drama, for which he followed six-year-old actor Eller Coltrane over the course of 12 years to literally chart his coming of age in a single movie. Boyhood has been as unanimously praised as a movie gets in these contentious days of opinion-mongering. You and I are both on the record at Letterboxd and elsewhere as liking the film, which makes sense because Linklater has received as much acclaim on the show as perhaps any contemporary filmmaker. But I'm still curious about one thing. At what moment, what age, maybe, I should say, did boyhood hook you, Adam? Did it happen early on when Coltrane's Mason is first beginning to negotiate the perils of friends and school? Was it a scene with his sister, played by Linklater's daughter, Lorelai, who is at once a pest and confidant, antagonist and ally throughout his life? 
Perhaps it was a moment with his mother, played by Patricia Arquette, or his father, played by Ethan Hawke, who's a bit like Jesse of the Before Sunrise series if he'd never made it to Europe. I'm curious about this because the responses to Boyhood have been almost exclusively emotional. Moments of nostalgic recognition, expressions of empathy for the characters, sadness over having to leave these characters' lives at the movie's end. So how were you hooked, Adam, and at what point? When did your Boyhood wallop come? Well, the wallop didn't come until near the end of the film. Okay. In terms of being hooked by the movie... I can't pinpoint an exact moment because I was fairly well hooked from the get-go. Right you were hooked by the, the concept. Of the film. I was hooked by the concept. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So despite hearing some Coldplay, and no, I'm not just going to rip on Coldplay as a cliche, but not the best beginning necessarily to a film. And yet shortly after that, I was definitely hooked by this movie. And I've actually avoided reading any commentary on the film whatsoever until after we've taped this discussion. So I really am excited to dive in and see what other people are saying about it. But I've seen some of the responses on Twitter and seen how emotionally some Mm -hmm. critics and audiences have reacted. And it certainly doesn't surprise me because, yes, Boyhood did hit me hard. And I would like to talk about some of those specific moments. But since it was, as I said, mostly at the end of the movie, we'd be getting into some spoiler territory that I don't want to get into right now. But Josh, this being a podcast and this being a case where I think a lot of our listeners have probably seen this movie, I do think we should get into spoiler territory at the end. Okay. We can set that up. For now, I will just say that while there were those one or two specific scenes that pretty much wrecked me at the end of the film, more than anything, it was a wave of emotion that washed over me as we saw Mason graduate high school at the end of the film. Again, not really a spoiler. We know we're following him from age 6 to 18. You see this kid who we've watched over that 12-year span, and we'll talk more about this later, but it's the only time in the whole movie, I think, that Linklater offers us a conventional movie-slash-adulthood milestone. But fittingly, Linklater doesn't focus on the milestone itself. We don't see his 18th birthday party. We don't see the last day of school. We don't see a graduation ceremony. What we see is just the post-graduation ceremony moments with his family back at the house, which is really, if you think about it, all that matters. It's sort of not what does that moment mean, but what do the next moments mean? And that's really the whole film in a nutshell. What do the next moments mean? Because they're as important as any other moment. You don't really become a different person just because you toss that hat up in the air and a school deems you worthy of moving on. So the key question of this movie, I think, really is, why do this experiment? Why track the same actor and his sister, Linklater's daughter in this case, and the mother, Arquette, and Ethan Hawke, the father, over 12 years, beyond just conducting the experiment itself, which actually is valid in Mm -hmm. and of itself. I think that could be enough to justify doing it. But the answer completely crystallized for me in the culmination of every moment Linklater had captured up to that point. And look, this movie was always going to be in my emotional wheelhouse as a father who not only has three boys and a daughter, not that it really matters about the gender, but I've got three boys and my oldest is 12. His 12 years of life correspond to the 12 years we see on screen. It starts in 2002. His life started in 2002. That correlation certainly wasn't lost on me as I watched this film. But beyond that, I think the movie hit me so hard at the end because of the experiment, because Linklater lets us glimpse as much as possible life itself. That's how I reacted anyway. What about you? Did it hit you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it certainly did. And in one way, it's unfair to ask which moment it was because you're absolutely right that this is not a movie of the big, generic, 
emotional moments right. we see in so many other family dramas. Uh, instead, and but in, on the other hand, that's why I'm curious about when it did hit you because it could be the most random scene because the emotional power of this movie going experience is cumulative. Mm-hmm. It builds on you not because of big things that are happening, but because of the time you've spent, whether that time has been mundane or troublesome uh, or just another day. It doesn't matter. You've been there with this family, really, and this kid in particular. And so that creates this bond that allows for the most insignificant moments to have colossal significance because you're that close to these characters. Right. And I think that's what this experiment does. And so for me, the moment that wrecked me, I still don't quite understand why, is maybe three quarters of the way through. And there's a Thanksgiving party, perhaps, that yeah. his mom is throwing for her students. At this point, she's become a psychology professor. I think at like a community college community or a college, college it looks like Texas. something like that. And she's having her students over for, for Thanksgiving. And um, Patricia Arquette isn't even the scene, um, but it's about her. The son is in his bedroom talking to one of her students and she's asking about posters and that sort of thing, trying to get to know him a little bit. And uh, he asks just an offhanded question, I think mostly because he doesn't know what to say to this person about his mom as a teacher. And this student goes off on this um, rather lengthy, just how great she is as a teacher, how important she is to her life. And you can just see in that moment how this kid's world is shifting that, okay, my mom isn't just my mom. And he doesn't really have a contentious relationship with her. It's a rich relationship, I think, one of the film's really strong points. Um, But it's just this dawning on him that my mom has this other life, you know, and one of the remarkable things about Boyhood is that it encompasses all these other characters and gives us a sense of the 12 years in their lives as well. Fully, so mm-hmm. fully, so that it's not just about this kid. Right. Uh, that really enriches it. I think the performances um, by Hawk, by Arquette particularly, have a lot to do with that, and by uh, Laura Lightlink later as well. Yeah, she's very good. And I think you use the word mundane. That definitely is a word I had in my notes as well, because there's a story at one point, and Some could maybe criticize Linklater for underlining things a little bit too much. It doesn't really bother me. I think this is a wonderful exchange between father and son. Maybe about halfway through, I think Mason at this point is maybe 12 or so, and he's spending the night with his sister at his dad's house with Ethan Hawke. And at some point he asks him something like, Dad, is there really magic in the world? Yeah, great scene. are Are there unicorns and fairies and those kinds of things? And he says, well, no, not really. But he says, if I told you there were whales in the ocean... And he describes kind of the setting. Wouldn't you consider that magic as well? And I think that was, in a way, a little bit of a wink by Linklater saying to us that there is magic in the mundane, Mm -hmm. in those kind of everyday things like whales that we all just know are in the ocean. And we sort of take for granted just how magical they can really be. And the way the film's structure and the visual conceit that he uses here, which is to not give us any signposts, to not tell us how old the kids are, to not tell us what the date is. We can tell what the date is by the things they're talking about, by the things they're interested in. The music sometimes does that as well. Yeah, you're not supposed to be focused on this is a new milestone in this kid's life because, as we both said, it's not really about the milestones. It is about the moments and the cumulative effect of those moments. So it's really fascinating to see how we go from one scene closing To the next scene, in one case, I want to say, tell me if I'm not remembering this right, Josh, because it has been a while since I've seen the movie, but about three quarters of the way through, there is a scene as he's a little bit older where I swear he comes home late one night 
and he talks to his mom and then he goes to bed and he comes down the next morning and he's clearly older. I don't remember, you know, I don't remember if it happens in that particular point. There are certainly jump cuts like that that proceed significantly ahead in time. Right. Um, and, and it's it's jarring in one sense, but not because tonally it's of a piece. Yeah. And, and I think we're so closely tied to this kid that that we've made that jump with him in time. And we, we seem to be right there and we pick up right with it. It's yeah. It's not jarring. In and the sense. use of music, too, to add to that conceit, where the music here is just used to mark transitions. It's not really used to underline moments, which is how mm. movies often use them. Because, again, that gets to the overall point of the whole film, which is it's all about transitions. They're always in flux. We as people are always in flux. And even when Ethan Hawke gives him the Black Album, as he calls it, and yeah. we'll link to that if you're not familiar with this in our show notes, because the playlist, I think over at IndieWire, one of them did an article about it and listed the tracks. And this is something apparently Ethan Hawke really did for one of his kids in real life. And it gets used here in the movie where he took all the solo stuff from the four Beatles uh-huh. and put them together. But he explains to him that it's not just about picking the songs. It's about picking the segues. It's about picking how they roll into each other. Right. And that is another case, like so many aspects of the film, where that album is sort of a nice metaphor for life in general, where it really is about those transitions. It's not so much about these grand transformative experiences or statements. And one other scene I'll give you real quick. Maybe this is the scene early on, Josh, where I knew I was really hooked to answer your question. And it really does reflect overall on this whole conversation we're having about how Linklater clearly isn't interested in these sort of cliche grand moments. It's very early. He's six years old or so. And the mom tells them that we have to move. We're moving back to Houston. We're going to be near grandma. And they're getting the house ready to move. And they're painting. And he goes over to the wall. And without Linklater really drawing any significant attention to it, she says, yeah, paint that over. And doesn't really even recognize that it's the wall where, like every one of us have done in our homes, charted the growth of our children. And he kind of goes over and just pauses in front of it. But that's it. And then starts painting over it. And that was such a great, again, visual representation of the whole film where it's this idea that those moments, those milestone moments as you get taller and taller, in the grand scheme of things, don't really matter. You can't take them with you. You can't take those charts with you as you move on to another home you have to leave it behind it's those transitions again and it's kind of heartbreaking it's bittersweet it's very no heartbreaking doubt. but at the same time it's appropriate and even in that scene if i'm remembering correctly the actual painting is sort of done in the background there, there's some mm-hmm. sort of action breaking up between when she tells him to do it and he eventually does it and we're concentrating more on her packing and, and you notice he does go up to it and look at it like you said but but link doesn't emphasize that no. or make it this huge uh crushing thing he has to do the next time we see him he's just doing it because that's what his mom asked him to do and then a few scenes later as they're leaving uh, we notice that he sees what we presume is his best friend it is yeah because uh, the him kid earlier. has been there in a few earlier scenes uh in the neighborhood riding his bike away not even realizing they didn't have a chance to say goodbye and mason just kind of looks out the window and his face we're going to get to his performance but his face there is so perfect because it's this impassive and you've seen it on kids Mm -hmm. i've seen it in my own kids where you know this is a major thing they're thinking about but they're not showing you a thing Mm -hmm. on their face they're processing it uh, and that's how he plays that scene and i think that sequence in particular overall but the movie does this uh, in many ways captures how childhood is something 
that happens to us, yes. not with us. Yeah. In so many ways. I mean, kids are not active participants. And in a way, it has to be set up like that, right? Because they're not ready to do this. But there's something also sad about that. And there are many moments in the movie that captures it where his childhood is just something that's happening to him. And of course, one of the things the movie charts by the passage of time is how Mason begins to take control of that mm-hmm. uh, until we do see. And that's theoretically what should happen by 18, right? Yeah. He should he should be ready to start making life happen with him. And our tentativeness at the end of the film is, uh, is he? Is he? And we maybe don't want to let him try yet. I love that you bring up control. I want to get to that in a moment. But I also want to go back to that scene you just brought up because that's another one I singled out. Right after that painting, you're right, we get to them leaving and the kid on the bike. And again, I just might be misremembering it, but I thought there was even a little bit of ambiguity where it almost seemed like the boy on the bike, his friend, I think his name is Tommy, and he's a little bit obscured as we see Mason's point of view. There was a sense that he could be completely oblivious Mm -hmm. to the fact that Mason's leaving or almost seemed like he was riding after the car a little bit, that he was kind of speeding up to get towards him. And Mason just floats off. And I, I read love... it as that he was just happened to be out there playing. Which and this part which is more the Linklater style of the film, right. I think. And I think that's where I fall as well. That is where I ultimately think it is going. But what that really does express, and it comes up at multiple points in the film, Linklater really understands the way people float in and out of our lives. Not just as children, as adults as well, but especially as kids, like the brother and sister at one point that they have a very close relationship with, a stepbrother and a stepsister. And you kind of know when they say goodbye to him Mm -hmm. that you're probably never going to see them again in this movie, even as you hope they will. But you know what? In real life, that is usually what happens. Think about how many people you had really close bonds with, tight connections to, and deep relationships with when you were 6 years old, 10 years old, 16 years old. And when was the last time you talked to any of these people? When was the last time you thought about these people. And doesn't Samantha, I mean, the circumstances to that departure are a whole nother situation. They heighten things, let's just say, without mm-hmm. giving it away. But doesn't Samantha call um, her mom out on that yeah. a little bit? Like, we're never going to see them again? Mm-hmm. And that applies on the level you're talking about, just a practical matter of, um, well, that's how life is. Kids don't understand that. But it also applies here because it, it, it's a moral choice she's putting in front of her mother. Like, you have a responsibility here, don't you, that they should be coming with us? And what a wrenching scene because you're completely with her in making that demand of her mother. You feel the same way, yet you also understand where our cat is coming from in that she has to prioritize here and she has to take her kids and get them safe. And that's all that she can handle. Our, our cat is the standout performance to me in this film. I've yeah. got to say, I mean, this I could both have easily, she and Hawk are great. Hawk is very good, uh, but she could easily have been, um, you know, the try hard stalwart single mom, um, who's gonna, you know, rise beyond some of the things she's found herself in life to, to create her own identity. She does those things, but in a way that's not cliched at all. Like I said, it's an, it's an entirely separate film going mm-hmm. on with Arquette and Linklater gives her plenty of screen time, but she, 
she makes such rich use of it that you really do feel you've watched her story as well. Yeah, you're right. I think Patricia Arquette's always been a very good actress. She always gives underrated performances. And here, she so easily could have played this and Linklater could have written her as much more of a victim because, you know what, she yeah, is that's a victim. It. That's it. She's a victim legitimately mm-hmm. of some really bad acts by some of the men in her life. And also, of course, she makes those bad decisions to be with them, doesn't deserve anything she gets, and she doesn't play it that way. She doesn't play it as if she's a victim of anything. She needs to move on. She accepts things in a practical, rational way. And even though there are some emotional scenes and you really do feel sympathy for her, you never do pity her as a mom or as a wife in any of these scenarios. And that dignity... Arquette just exudes that. And her performance is so in lock with Linklater's style in that there are a couple of scenes, even though he set everything up not to be big moments, that she could have turned them into big moments, and she doesn't at all. No, you're exactly right. And you mentioned control, and I think that is a key part of this because, tell me if I'm crazy, but there is a point later in the film where, not surprisingly from maybe a movie like this and Linklater, if you think about movies like Waking Life and Slacker where people just have these big conversations they pontificate about the larger questions in life mason does ask his dad this is when i think he's about 18 he asks him you know what is the meaning of it all and ethan hawk in that moment says what do you mean really like you're asking me Mm -hmm, this now mm -hmm. i don't have the answer to that of course he doesn't but i think that this movie is wrestling with ultimately what all great art wrestles with which is that question of what is the meaning of our lives why are we here What's our purpose? And this is the part I want you to tell me if I'm crazy. This through line, I think Linklater gives us sort of a sneaky, clever through line where when we first meet Arquette in a school situation, she's a student and the professor in her psychology class is talking about Pavlov's dog. Mm -hmm. And the next time we're in a classroom, she's now the teacher and she's talking to her kids about the Skinner box. And then later in the film, there's a scene where Mason is driving with his girlfriend and he's talking to her about how you're sitting next to me and we should be connecting as human beings and talking to each other and look at you, you're checking Facebook, Mm -hmm. you're on your phone all the time and he's complaining sort of about the human race and our infatuation with our mechanical devices and in a very link later type monologue, talks about how we're all basically turning into robots as if that's how someone intended for us to be and he points out how researchers have done a study and shown that when that little ding goes off on your phone that tells you you've got a new text or a new email or whatever, that it gives you a dopamine rush. And thinking about that psychology bit that he describes there, in light of the Skinner box and Pavlov's dog, I don't think it's by accident that there are those three moments. And if you think about, of course, what that experiment was with the dogs, it's all about controlling a response. The Skinner box is all about controlling responses, putting animals in a confined space and dictating the rewards and the consequences of their actions. And the dopamine even sort of follows that. It says, just like Pavlov's dog, it says when you hear this or when you smell this or see this, it generates a certain response. And that ultimately does come back to this larger question of, again, sort of what's your purpose? What are you doing in life if all of your actions, how much of it is free will? How much of it is already been determined when we act on instinct like that, when other people can control how we respond. And throughout the whole film, you see Mason really struggling against that notion of control. Every father he has or father figure he has tries to exert some kind of control over him. And we can sit here all day and say that, well, fathers should do that and mothers need to do that. But every adult 
is constantly trying to assert themselves over him. Yes. Some in very good ways, yes. some in very justified, sensitive, rational ways. But nevertheless, it is about this control. And you think about him as one of these rodents in the Skinner box who simply wants to lead the type of life he wants to lead and make all the decisions for himself and somehow determine his own path. And yet he cannot do that. Life doesn't work like that. You know, in a way, this is a movie structured around speeches from adults given to Mason. Exactly. And that's not to say that he's constantly being lectured. He mm-hmm. gets some very wise in an Ethan Hawke skewed type way lecture from his father here yeah. and there. Um, he also gets some bad ones in the mix. And his mother gives him some lectures as well that I think on the whole are pretty clear-eyed and helpful. Even his photography teacher at one point does a really bad job of it. But as you're saying, uh, the meat of his lecture is good for the kid. The mm-hmm. kid needs to hear it. And of course, he does get some bad ones as well from these stepdads too. And I think what that counts for as far as uh, the control theme you're talking about, is what the determining forces have been that are shaping this kid. And so it's not entirely free will because he's been influenced by living with these three different men at different points in his life, um, by living with his mother throughout, mm-hmm. with this sister. I yeah. mean, it, it's also a, a wonderful portrait of sibling connection and relationship and how she can be at once the closest person to him in the world and the meanest. (laughs) You know, the the movie really captures that. So we're watching all these determining forces shape and mold this kid. And, And the miracle at the end of the film is that we seem to understand how he is who he is because of what we've seen. Right. And the wild card that Linklater had is would he be able to do that by giving up control? Which is what he did. What he ultimately did in this project is give up the sort of control a filmmaker has by selecting this actor at this stage, this actor at this stage, Mm -hmm. this actor at this stage, and I'm going to do it all in these two months. I mean, imagine being this freeing and letting your project be determined by uh, by the, the strictures he set up. Now, that brings us to Coltrane's performance, which I want to get to because um, huge risk, right, in doing this. And I think it could have gone two ways. It could have been uh, the kid could have grown up to be this amazingly precocious, brilliant actor that he had found. He could have been horribly awkward as he grew up and just barely even able to stand in front of the camera. And then what would have happened? In my mind, he's somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. He's an interesting presence. Right. Um, I I think he holds the screen. I think he's much better in some scenes than others. I, I actually think he's probably better at a younger age better whatever that means uh, he's more effective in the scenes as a younger kid we've talked about a few of them I right. think the one with his dad talking about the whales is just wonderful how you can sense that last little tinge of hopefulness leaving the boy's voice uh-huh. as he asks that question there are other scenes as he gets older where I think he stands out I don't know if non-professional is the word you can see that he's playing a role in a way that I don't think you can with Laurel I Link later, and you certainly can't with Arquette and Hawk. Right. Now, in a weird way, maybe that's okay. Yeah. Because this movie's be entire better. point is that the mundane, the average, the everyday mm-hmm. can be magical. Um, so I don't think it's a glaring flaw of the film at all. But at the same time, part of me does wonder if Coltrane had been the kind of talent as say, Hunter McCracken was in The Tree of Life mm-hmm. um, or other child actor performances we'd seen that are just so true and natural in every motion they make, what that movie might have been. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah. 
it's interesting to think about that, maybe if there was a different, more charismatic performer in that role. But at the same time, while he doesn't have that charisma, he just doesn't. And he doesn't have the presence, I agree with you, to suggest that we're going to go on to see many more performances from Eller Coltrane. I don't think we probably are. But the whole movie is about a character and a kid who doesn't have a lot of charisma, who right. does let a lot of people impose their will on him and is constantly struggling with that and trying to strike back against that in it's his own way. It's an interior character. It's an interior character, and, and, so and it's it, an interior performance. Right. It never at any point derailed the film for me, despite no, the fact that— No, it didn't derail for me either. I do see what you're saying about his performance. And I think talking about, as you said, Linklater giving up control and that way it corresponds with the act of filmmaking, I think, as a director, how it forced him into making certain decisions and maybe not having the freedom he would normally have. I want to get to this notion of Linklater as a filmmaker here because this has come up, obviously, with our deathmatch pull, Soderbergh versus Linklater. Linklater destroyed him. Mm-hmm. Well, 60 to 40, basically, as we heard during the live show. And, you know, I'm defending Soderbergh. And part of it is not to get all Richard Brody here, but Linklater is not a filmmaker who is interested fundamentally in the image. Right. Well, I this, think that's came fair up, to say. this came up well before our poll. I, yeah. For some reason, it might have been when we did before midnight. Um, someone had asked, where right. will Linklater rank? And I defended him and, and because the, there are beautiful moments in that film. Well. Before go ahead, because I think there's there's a reason and we can see that reason develop as we watch Boyhood. Okay, I'm completely with you that I don't need anything more visually from Linklater in this film Boyhood. There wasn't anything I was expecting him to do with the camera that I think would serve the story. But if going back to the deathmatch question, if we're talking about what we think is essential cinema, it's just hard for me to favor the guy who really is much more interested in text and dialogue and story versus a guy like Soderbergh and character, which matters, of course, versus a guy like Soderbergh for whom the look of his film always matters. Mm -hmm. I think as we're talking about a visual medium, maybe I have to favor the guy (laughs) who really does view film as a visual medium. But this is what I want to throw out. And again, tell me if I'm just nuts here a little bit. I think Linklater has done something really fascinating by at once completely embracing cinema as a visual medium and subverting it. We're watching a coming-of-age story where someone does come of age before our eyes, and that's something that can only be captured with a camera. Of course, you could have a still photo collection that tracks the aging process. I'm sure it's been done a million times in exhibits and by various artists, and I'm sure it's powerful and meaningful, but I would say in an entirely different way than on film or video, where you actually do see time unfold before your eyes. So in a way, Linklater here has pulled off the ultimate cinematic trick right? At the same time, though, think about how many movies you've seen and loved that have different actors playing the same character at different points in their lives and how you never really question that or are distracted by it. You just buy into that reality of the movie world. We accept that as part of the design of part of the magic of cinema. So he's taken something here, fundamentally cinematic, said, I'm going to show you something that you would otherwise never be able to see this progression. Only the camera Only film can give this to you. But at the same time, again, there is that little bit of a contradiction where that's something we never really question about the cinema. We just accept that. Yeah, I I mean, I think that makes sense, but I, I think that's giving it a lot more credit than the movie probably deserves in terms of its cinematic nature. I voted for Linklater, but my instinct is always to go as you 
did with a filmmaker who has more of a visual style or a cinematic style. It's not it's not just visual. It's a matter of editing as well, I think, comes into mm-hmm. it. And Soderbergh's obviously a master of editing. When you bring up photography, it does make me think that Mason becomes a photographer. It's one of the things he latches onto mm-hmm. in his last few years of high school. And just that detail should open up a whole world of possibility for bringing some visual ingenuity to this film. True. Linklater does show us a few of Mason's shots. There, I'll use the same phrase I use for Coltrane. They have an interesting presence. But I also wonder if what someone like Soderbergh or, or someone, I don't like to talk about what a movie could have been, but if there's some way that Boyhood did not fully stir my cinephile heart, mm-hmm. it's because I saw something like, oh, he's a photographer. If Linklater is going to, you know, broaden his palette as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. here's an awesome way to do it. As you're talking about within the confines of this film, he doesn't have to start doing the limey and cut every three seconds. Right. Uh, but here's a way to naturally start to show that he's broadened his palette as a filmmaker. Now. I think it is interesting to watch Boyhood and notice that we're not only watching Coltrane grow up as a person, we're watching Linklater develop as a filmmaker. Sure. I think it's very clear that the early scenes have some of that static nature that we'd associate with uh, Linklater's earlier films. And I think that by the time we get towards 16, 17, 18 years old, the movie's starting to get a little bit more of that professionals in the right word, a burnished look to some of the outdoor mm-hmm. scenes that are in Before Midnight, right. where, which was praised that some of those uh, those Greek outdoor settings yeah. just looked so beautiful. It's prettier, okay? But, yeah. I, but I don't necessarily identify pretty as being the equivalent of great cinema. No. So you can see his development there, but I also think that it would have been really exhilarating to see him develop that aspect of his filmmaking personality through this sort of sure. photography motif. Well, you won't get any disagreement from me. I would, of course, love to see a version of Boyhood that had a more interesting, perhaps visual look. At the same time, we are contradicting each other a little bit because you're the guy who voted Link later saying right. you wish this had a more striking visual strategy. And I'm the one saying I'm all Soderbergh and going, you know what? I didn't really need that in this film. And I didn't, I think, because something about as you said, that presence, just the presence of Coltrane is almost enough. And I think just the presence of Linklater's camera is almost enough. Any more burnished it got, I think, would perhaps detract from what we've been talking about, the magic in the mundane. Mm-hmm. The fact that we are so focused on these characters and their progression. And maybe the camera could have distracted from that. So I don't begrudge Linklater taking that more staid, traditional Linklater approach to this film. We're actually probably going to run out of time here pretty quick, Josh. You have to get to a screening, and I've got a four-year-old having a milestone. Oh, yeah? He's got a birthday party that we need to celebrate, so... In Linklater style, don't document it at all. I know, of course. No photos, no no video. Yeah, it's not important. Good. In the grand scheme of things, (laughs) I'm glad you've learned from the movie. But as much as we do need to close, let's talk briefly, because we promised them, let's talk briefly spoilers. Okay. Any moment that really did put its emotional hooks into you, for me, it's at the end of the film where Patricia Arquette's character breaks down as he's about to go off to college. And it really hit me, I think, Josh, because of how subdued Arquette's performance is, how subdued the camera work is. It's not a typical, even though it very well could be, cliche Hollywood moment where a mom has a huge breakdown. It, too, comes almost as more of a culmination of 
a lot of different scenes from their lives, a lot of different moments. And she finally just can't help but weep a little bit and be emotional at the fact that her son is going off to college. And then what does that mean for her? It's just a brilliant little monologue that she has. And it's so good. And then, of course, here we are, as we've touched on a little bit, as a dad who's already nostalgic about we're six his, years away from yeah, that. We're six scene. years away. I'm already nostalgic we about both my have 12 year olds, <laughs> my 12 year olds past and looking ahead yeah. to that moment when he's 18, looking ahead to the moment when my last one is going off to college and knowing how much that's going to destroy me. And just being put in her shoes at the end of the film, when she expressed that lament, I was crushed. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. And um, Coltrane is good in that scene. Yeah. That is one of his best scenes, yeah. I will say, because and, and it plays to this lack of um, you, you said charisma. And by no means was I looking for someone to have more. I, I didn't need like Zac Efron from High School Musical in here. Right. <laughs> but but here his subdued persona works perfectly because this is this is a kid who would play that moment of life that way, understanding how huge it is for his mom. But he's just not the kid to like yeah. go cry with her or give a mm-hmm. hug or, or, you know, it's just handled so quietly. These are life's biggest moments softly played in this film. And that is one of them. Um, and, and Arquette makes it work and Coltrane makes it work as well. It's 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 really something. Another little touch from Linklater I love. Maybe this isn't even so much of a spoiler, but there is a great exchange where the Ethan Hawke character is telling Mason how to really win a girl and what he has to do as a young man. And he says, you know, you have to really listen to her. You have to, it's not just an act the way he expresses it. You have to really be engaged and you have to be listening to what she is saying. And I think it's fair to argue that you almost know that his first real love, his first real relationship, as we think about that scene in the car where Mm -hmm. they're talking about the dopamine and the, phones and technology, you almost know it's not really going to work because of the fact that it's so one-sided. She's not really talking to him. She's not saying anything. There's nothing to listen to. (laughs) He has to do all the talking. He's the only one with anything really interesting to say. Now, maybe that's not fair. Maybe if he would let her express more and not be so controlling, she would. Yeah, the movie is better to her than we're making it maybe sound. exactly. But at the same time... They're not a match. They're not a match. They're not a match. who, Who points that out? Who, who says later on? Hawk. Well, Ethan Hawke says right, yeah. it, right. He, he says later he knew, you know, he, he had yeah. a feeling. Well, <laughs> maybe he did because he saw them conversing with each other or not conversing with each other. Now, at the end of the film, the scene that David Wayne at our 500 yeah. show, yeah. he singled out Boyhood as one of his six films of the film spotting era and said that moment on the mountain. And I agree. That one took my breath away as well. And I love the fact that who's doing all the talking? Mm-hmm. The girl is doing all the talking. And... I think that is supposed to suggest that, you know what, maybe maybe they are a match. Maybe yeah. this is going to go somewhere at least a little more deep and have a little bit more longevity because he, for the first time, is really interested in hearing what she has to say. He's taken his father's words to heart. Maybe, he has. Finally. Which is what all good kids yes, should do. You found encouragement in that. I think that. that's the point we're <laughs> meant to end on here, Josh. I like it. Boyhood is out now in limited release. It's playing in select cities around the country. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. As we talk about the 500th show, Josh did want to throw out a quick plug for our partners at the Music Box and also for our partners here at WBEZ, the great music podcast, Sound Opinions. They're going to be a key part of the fourth annual Summer Music Festival presented by the Music Box and Sound Opinions at 
that theater, August 15th through the 19th. They're showcasing music films, documentaries, features, and concert footage. It includes the 30th anniversary screening of Stop Making Sense, Jonathan Demme's movie about the talking heads that I've always regretted not seeing. Purple Rain is playing. That I've seen many times, and I do love it. A Hard Day's Night and a few others. So if you're curious about films about music and some of those movies in particular, we do encourage you to check out that fourth annual Summer Music Film Festival at the Music Box. We'll link to more information in the notes for the show at filmspotting.net. We also want to remind you that this episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by our great partners over at Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code FILM. We have one listener site to promote here, actually, Josh, longtime listener and Film Spotting forum member Crumpet at Crumpet on Twitter, says, here's mine, crumpart.net. That's C-R-U-M-P-A-R-T dot net. Crumpet is an artist and showcases that artwork over at that website. We have many others we're going to feature on upcoming episodes. And if you're a listener who uses the Squarespace platform and we haven't plugged your site before, please do send us a quick testimonial. Send us the link. Tell us why you like to use Squarespace, and we will feature it on an upcoming show. They are constantly improving their platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They've got a responsive mobile experience to match the overall style of your website on any device, and you can easily embed videos and trailers of your favorite films and TV shows via the simple YouTube and Vimeo integration. It's all super easy to use, and their support that we mentioned, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It all starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. You can start a trial without a credit card. Just start building your website. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code FILM to get 10% off and to show your support for film spotting. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Out in wide release this weekend, The 100-Foot Journey from director Lassa Hallstrom, starring Helen Mirren, Into the Storm, which, frankly, Josh, just looks like another amusement park ride to be. Step Up All In, I know you're a huge fan of the Step Up series. I can highly recommend the first Step Up film. Okay. Have not seen any So maybe I overstated that (laughs) slightly. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles also out as well. In limited release opening here in Chicago, a couple we want to highlight, a master builder playing at the Gene Siskel Film Center. This is the adaptation of an Ibsen play by Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory. You may know them from My Dinner with Andre fame. It stars Shawn and is directed by Stop Making Sense director Jonathan Demme. That's out. I'm curious about it as I have seen that Ibsen play in performance in London. Very good play. Also, a movie we're curious about is Cavalry. This is the new film from director John Michael McDonough. He made The Guard with Brendan Gleeson a few years back. We missed it, but many film spotting listeners loved it and recommended it. So that's one we need to seek out as well. And finally, What If, directed by the filmmaker behind Goon, Michael Douse. It stars Daniel Radcliffe, Zoe Kazan, and Adam Driver. Our friend David Ehrlich says it's a straightforward romantic comedy that doesn't feel like it was written by robots. Well, I actually prefer my romantic comedies to be written by robots. Sorry. You're going to hate it then, Josh. Next week, you're off. You're taking a little break with the family. Michael Phillips will be in your chair. The review in the top five list, to be decided. We're leaning towards, even though it's been out a couple weeks, leaning towards a most wanted man. Yeah. So we can talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman. If you guys have any recommendations about what you'd like to hear us talk about, top five-wise, review-wise, go ahead and email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.